0: Let's turn in the Word of God to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to begin our reading in the Word of God at verse 1, the first verse. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Timothy... Bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ." And this, I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Jesus Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, as we said last night, Philippians is a Christ-centered book. It is Christocentric. And that is a good antidote to the common human condition of always thinking about ourselves. That is something we revert to very easily. And we'll see that even among believers, it's still a problem that we can fall into oh so often, because Philippians has to deal with the problems that arose in the church in Philippi because of people being over-occupied with themselves. However, I much like Paul's approach, because he doesn't start out by going right for the jugular, so to speak, and saying, now you Philippians, you've got a lot of problems. I mean, you've got two sisters there, for example, Yodius and Syntyche, and they're not getting along. And look, if you don't want me to come down there to Greece and bang heads together, you all better get your act together. No, he mentions the problem between Yodius and Syntyche, which was the most public example of what seemed to be a bigger private problem of a lot of different saints. Because of the teaching of chapter 2, that's going to direct all of the saints to retool their mindset and have the perspective that the Lord Jesus himself had on things, others, namely. But he doesn't get to Iodias and Syntyche, these problem sisters, if you will, until chapter 4. He lays first a foundation and not less than in these first 12 verses where he establishes with the saints in Philippi his personal regard for them. You know, from time to time, we all need to be rebuked. We all do things that are wrong. We all are mistaken sometimes. We need correction. That is one of the things that 2 Timothy 3.16 says the word of God is for. But we must bear in mind the approach of the Lord Jesus, and Paul learned this approach deeply, that when you're washing people's feet, it's important to first convey your love for them. And the passage where the Lord Jesus washed the feet of his disciples in John 13 begins with a declaration of the categorical and full and lasting eternal love of the Lord Jesus for his own. Jesus, having loved his own, John 13, one says, love them unto the end, or better translated, love them to the uttermost. In other words, to the fullest extent possible for the longest indefinite period of eternity that your mind can focus on. So, ere he would wash their feet, he would show them he loved them. And when he would wash their feet, he would get down and be the bondservant toward them. So observe how Paul begins. Paul and Timothy in verse 1. Bondservants of Jesus Christ. I'm not coming in here as the leader. I'm not coming in as the guru. I'm not coming in as the dictator. I'm not coming in as the man who's going to dictate to you how you need to get your act together. I'm coming as the slave, literally the word, of Jesus Christ. I'm coming because I serve in his bonds, not because I'm anything, but because I'm linked to him in the bonds of his service. That's why I'm going to teach you what I'm going to teach you in this book, says Paul. Notice how he addresses them in the same verse to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now you think in religious circles, how long it takes somebody to become a saint today? I mean, uh, you got to be dead a long time normally before they even consider you. And then you got to go through various chairs, various stages, various committees. Bureaucrats love that process. And eventually, maybe after you've been dead for decades, if not centuries, maybe they will designate you a saint. And then they'll name lots of buildings after you. Well, whoopee for that. Paul writes to them and he says, no, the New Testament teaching of a saint is one who is set apart to God because that's the what the word is. When it's used as an adjective, a word modifying a noun in the New Testament, it's translated holy. When it's used as a noun it's translated saints. So a saint is a holy one, or if you will, a set apart one, or a separated one, if you prefer. All of that is the idea here. And it connotes to us the fact that the Lord Jesus has purchased us. That as 1 Corinthians says, we are bought with a price. We're not our own. We belong to the Lord Jesus. We are his for his usage. And so it's important to remember our position in Christ because he calls them saints in Christ Jesus. Now, I realize on a Monday morning when you've gotten up uh, far too early than what should be demanded of you and you've cooked over a smoky fire and you've had to put up with uh, some tourists from Rhode Island or somewhere that have been too noisy during the night, it's very hard to feel like a saint and your practice may not be all that saintly. You may have spoken in an ill-advised way to your spouse this morning. You may have lashed out at your children this morning. You may not have done what you knew you should have done this morning. You may not feel, therefore, all that saintly. But, you know, if, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact of the matter is, you are a saint in Christ Jesus. You are set apart To God for His purposes, which are going to take you all the way to eternity, as we shall see. Now, He speaks about where they are because, in time and space, at that moment in history, geographically speaking, they were the ones in Philippi who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. We always see those terms in plural in the New Testament. The New Testament church is not a one man show, God has intentionally designed it with a multiplicity of oversight. That is, with more than one who have responsibility of shepherding and leading the flock of God. And again, leading in God's assembly isn't about being the most important person, it's about being the servant of all. So when we come to the New Testament, it's not about following a man and men building up sort of their own little dynasty, their own little fiefdom, but it is about multiple men following the Lord Jesus and serving him among his people. He goes on to say about them or to them, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Greeks began letters, they often spoke about grace. It was kind of One of those nice things to begin a letter with, like, I hope you're doing well. You know, we put that at the beginning of a letter, and really, we don't really care if the person's doing well or not. It's nice if they are, but we want to tell them about our vacation in Yosemite and how many deer we saw and running from the bear with a bag of potato chips in our hand and all that. But, you know, you have to start out polite, and you want the person to read the rest of the letter. So you say, I hope you're well. Well, that's kind of how the Greeks use the word grace as a toss-off phrase. Now, to this day in Jerusalem, they'll say shalom, shalom, or in other parts of Israel, shalom once. You know Jerusalem Jerusalemite by the fact that they repeat it, shalom, shalom. That's what they often say. They say that for hello, and they say it for goodbye. And, you know, it can become a perfunctory thing. You don't really think about what you're saying. It's just hello or goodbye. You don't really think about it. But when Paul writes about it, when he speaks about grace and peace, it's really an explanation of what has come to them in God the Father. And notice the Lord Jesus Christ is put on the same level. It is an implicit statement of his deity and co-equality with the Father that this grace and peace are coming from both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the grace, we have to always remember that we don't come to God by what we do. We don't come to God because we're somehow better than other folks. We come to God because we were among the worst who've nevertheless been given God's salvation as a free gift and that the Lord has made a great salvation for us at tremendous personal cost, even shedding his own life's blood On the cross of Calvary. So that we could be saved. You see we didn't just need a band-aid. We didn't just need a little bit of help. A little boost. We needed to be remade. From the inside out. So dramatically. That the Lord had to call. What he does to us in salvation. Conversion. Or as he says in 2nd Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ. He is a new creature. We are a new creation if we belong to the Lord Jesus. He couldn't take the old and just polish it up a little bit. The old was tainted and ruined by sin. But in grace, we're brought into this position of favor. We're viewed as saints before God. And what is our settled enjoyment? Well, objectively, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he speaks here about this peace to them as well. That objective peace results in the subjective peace that he's going to talk about in chapter 4 as being the peace which passes understanding. These aren't toss-off comments. These are things that are realities to the Christian. Now, he starts off by thanking the Lord for them. He says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, Always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. They were on Paul's regular prayer list, so to speak. They were those who Paul would remember before the throne of grace. And you know, sometimes when you get to know a group of Christians somewhere, a local church of Christians... You get to understand that they have problems. You get to understand that they're not perfect. You get to understand, frankly, that some of those in fellowship are downright annoying, okay? You you just, you could feel like, well, Lord, it's okay if I'm going to heaven, but do they really have to be there? I mean, they're kind of a sandpaper brother or sister. They really rubbed me the wrong way, you know? And uh, we don't necessarily. Uh, naturally fit together. I like the Spanish phrase, no me caen bien. They don't fall well to me, okay? So I'll try not to speak in tongues this week. And if I do, it'll be with interpretation. But anyway, um, the idea here is he's praying for them. And it's awfully hard to hold a grudge against a believer when you're praying for them. It's awfully hard to keep yourself angry with a brother or sister, when you're praying for them, when you really go before the throne of grace and you perceive yourself and how much you've been forgiven by God in Christ and how much you don't deserve to come into the very presence of the holy God and yet you're there by grace, how can you come in with bitterness in your heart? You can come in that way, but you better leave it there with the Lord. It changes your heart toward the believers when you pray for them. And when you go through the people in the local fellowship to which you belong, and if you're a believer, God means for you to be in fellowship with the local church. That's part of the ways that God uses to prepare us in this life for the life to come, to shape us for the service in eternity that we're going to have unto the Lord. And it's extremely important that we join together with brothers and sisters in Christ in a committed way, in the fellowship of the local church. And when you go through the names of those in your fellowship on a regular basis and pray for them, it's amazing how the Lord puts them in your heart. And indeed, that's what he says about them exactly. He says um, further down in the passage, in fact, in verse 7, because I have you in my heart. Now, what a wonderful way to speak about the believers, At this time, we'll find out, he was imprisoned. The Romans were keeping him captive. He couldn't come and be with the saints. But he said, you know, wherever I am, there you are with me in my heart. I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about you. I love you. I'm thankful for your fellowship in the gospel, verse 5, from the first day until now. You see, the gospel is too big a work to leave to the professionals. It is true that God does give some to be evangelists, but evangelists are meant to equip the church, according to Ephesians 4. They help the church to learn how to share the gospel with other people. And each one of us, if we know the Lord Jesus, we're called to be witnesses. Like that blind man in John 9 who said, This I know, that once I was blind, but now I can see. Now, somebody said God has not called many lawyers. Thank God for that. They didn't say that, sorry. They said God hasn't called many lawyers, but he has called many witnesses. And that's true, you know. You may not feel like Ray Comfort or Ravi Zacharias or some other great evangelist, somebody gifted that you know. But you have to be a witness. You have to tell of the light that is within you, of what the Lord, has done for your soul. And they had had fellowship, they had shared in that work of the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, verse 6, that he who has begun a good work in you would com- will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, positionally before God, they are saints in Christ Jesus. Practically, their behavior would not always, 100% of the time, be Holy. Because we still fail, we still sin, we still struggle in this life. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, Galatians 5.16 tells us. But look at the work God is doing in us. He's not just going to call us saints and overlook what our lives are with our weaknesses and our foibles and our sins. No, God is committed to working into us the outcome for which he saved us. That is that he saved us to be holy and he's working in us to make us a holy people. In fact, to conform us to the image of his son so that when the Lord Jesus appears, according to 1 John 3, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. Imagine that. The Lord has saved you if you know the Lord Jesus here today. And he's begun a good work in you. And he's not going to be as I have been That sometimes I've started a job and I get in the middle and I say, now this is too annoying. I'm going to stop this job. You know, this material isn't what I thought it was. It's kind of weak or it's kind of beggarly. So I'm going to start anew. I'm going to throw this on the scrap heap. Let me tell you, whoever you are, wherever God saved you from, he's not going to finish with you. He's not going to cast you aside until he has conformed you to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. That's what Romans chapter 8 tells us explicitly. And here he says, He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. I'm glad he doesn't speak about our faithfulness. Because if it were dependent on our faithfulness, we'd never get there. I like what the hymn writer said. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. He is working in you. And if you really know the Lord Jesus as your savior, he will not finish that work until the Lord Jesus comes. And by what Romans calls the redemption of the body, he takes you to be with himself. And he transforms what Philippians 3 will call the body of your humiliation to be a body like unto his body, a resurrected, glorified body fit to be in the presence of God For eternity. May that day come soon. Maranatha. But he says, just as this is right for me to think this of you all, verse 7, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers, really, it's fellow partakers, with me of grace. So he says here, you know, I feel like we're in this together. It's just like you're here with me, you're in my heart. And you're praying for me. And you're drawing on this vast reservoir of grace that God has the grace that enables you to serve God on the outside of prison walls. And I'm drawing on the same reservoir of grace. I'm depending on the same Lord to uphold me and strengthen me and make me a holy person. And what's more, we have to look at this whole thing from the perspective of the gospel because there needs to be this twofold thing in verse seven, the defense and the confirmation Of the gospel. Now, the defense of the gospel is what we might call apologetics. It's giving a reasonable answer for the gospel, it's clearing out roadblocks to belief. So, when people attack the credibility of the scriptures, thank God there are saints who have proven from history, from archaeology, from the internal literary consistency of the Bible itself that this is the Word of God. There are people that answer objections that others have that keep them from giving the gospel a hearing. In that sense, the gospel needs to be defended. Paul here is a prisoner, and he's not thinking about his defense, number one. He's not saying, get me Johnny Cochran's phone number lightning quick. I got to prepare a good defense. No, he's thinking about the gospel's defense, I want to make sure that the gospel is held up appropriately before my captors and before those who oppose it. But also, he speaks here about the confirmation of the gospel. The fact that we take the gospel and we bring the principles of the gospel and we bring them out and show the fullness of them in a person's life. Because after all, the gospel is much more than believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. That is part of the gospel, thanks be to God. But what exactly is God saving us for? Well, he's saving us, body, soul, and spirit for time. He's saving us right now to live differently. Salvation isn't just fire insurance against hell. Thanks be to God, if you have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible tells us, the Lord Jesus says himself in John 5.25, that you will not come into judgment. Romans 8.1 adds, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you're not going to go to hell if you believe in the Lord Jesus, if you've received him as your Lord and Savior. But there's more to it than that, isn't it? It's a relationship. The Lord Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is life eternal, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. So we need to learn to walk with God. And we need to learn how God wants to be served. That's why in 1 Corinthians, an epistle all about how God's local church is to function. Every problem, Paul refers back to the gospel. Is there a problem with sectarianism and division among the believers? Go back to the gospel and remember who was crucified for you. Remember in whose name you were baptized. Is there a problem with immorality among the saints and tolerating open sin? Go back to the gospel and remember 1 Corinthians 5. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Is there a problem with believers taking one another to court? Or a problem with believers going to prostitutes. Go back to the gospel. In each of these things, he takes them back to the gospel. You see, it behooves us as believers to get into the depth of the word of God. Of what this gospel is and all the different avenues of life. Including God's church that are played out and explained for us in the confirmation of the gospel. Now, of course, he had great personal affection for them. That comes out in verse 8. He says, God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all. And I love this touch with the affection of Jesus Christ. It's not that Paul says, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I'm a nicer person. And I really care about you. What made Paul love the saints? Well, it was the love of Christ working through him. You see, we're not naturally lovable, not any one of us, much as we might think we are. And some of us put on a better public facade than others. But we all know we have those ugly places in our hearts, don't we? We all know we can get up on the wrong side of the bed or the tent or the sleeping bag or the hard ground that you're barely on a blanket on top of. I don't know what your accommodations are like. I'm living large in Curry Village, so uh, I'll pray for you all. I have you in my heart, you know. (laughs) But he says, this I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more. Now, notice this. This isn't like so many people say today. You know, we just need to have love. And love, well, I think it comes out of the Woodstock generation or something. You know, love is just, ah, everybody's, oh, come give me a hug, you know, just everybody give me a hug. I just love everybody, love, right? Everybody's okay. Now look at what Paul says here, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge, and really it's the intensified word there that we might translate full knowledge and discernment. So The love that the Lord calls us to and the love that the Lord puts in the heart of a believer is to love the things that are really worth loving. God does not love the sordid. He does not love sin. He hates it. And we have to learn as believers to discern what is good and what is bad. What should I hate like God hates and what should I love like God loves And, you know, it might bring us to some surprising answers if we ask those questions. But Paul says, yes, I want your love to increase and abound more and more, but I want it to be with full knowledge and discernment. He goes on to say that you may approve things. That's the idea of putting things to the test and you find the excellent things. You approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. So again, he orients it back toward Christ and he says, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming and on the divine sovereignty side of things, the work that he's begun in you, he's going to complete when he comes back again. But what is your responsibility? What's the human responsibility side? What do you as a human being have to do? Well, in light of the Lord's coming, you want to be sincere and without offense, Or as it says in 1 John 3, when he talks about the coming of the Lord there, he says, every man that has this hope in him, in Christ that is, purifies himself even as he is pure. So if we believe the Lord is coming, we're saying, you know what? When the Lord comes, I want to be at my best. I want to be living in a way that pleases him. I want to be about my father's business. I want him to come and find me doing what he saved me for. He goes on to explain this, verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God this fruit of the Spirit that Galatians 5 talks about, here called fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. These are the things God wants to produce in our lives. He wants this salvation to be played out in our lives, in a sanctified life. But now he turns to his own experience. And just for the last moments of this message, I want to consider that with you. He says, verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happen to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, what had happened to him? Well, he had been arrested and he had been put in prison. Now, would you say, you know, this brother, his ministry, it's really being used in Southern California, or it's really being used in the Bay Area, or it's really being used in wherever. I'd like to see his ministry expand. I hope he gets arrested, you know? I'd love it if after the meeting, if you heard, bad boys, bad boys, what you're going to do? What you're going to do when they come for you? And they come and knock him down and handcuff him and take him. You say, that would be a great advance to his ministry. You say, no, we want to keep believers outside. I mean, a prison ministry is fine as long as you can come out again, right? Right. I worked with a brother in Spain once and we went to a town to preach the gospel and he wrote ahead of time to the mayor of that town and said, we want to come and preach the gospel in the town square. You know, we have this right under the Spanish constitution. And the mayor wrote back and said, if you come to our town, we'll put you in jail. So we prayed about it. We went ahead. We came to the town and and this brother handed me a tract. He said, go give some tracts to that guy sitting over there. I went over and offered it to the guy and his two friends on the bench. I came back. He says, do you know who that was? I said, no. He said, that was the mayor. I said, thanks a lot, brother. I want to start a prison ministry, but not from the inside, you know. Thankfully, the mayor didn't do anything to us. The Lord preserved us. But anyway, you might think that Paul going to prison is an awfully funny way for the gospel to progress. How could that be? Well, he explains it here to us. He says, first of all, in verse 13, it's become evident to the whole palace guard, the whole praetorian guard. Now, the praetorian guard, among other things, not only did they guard the political prisoners, but they would cycle through and some of them would be Caesar's bodyguards. So they doubled as prison guards and secret service, if you will. And yet it had become evident to them... And to all the rest, he says, that my chains are in Christ. So how is God going to get the gospel to the most powerful man in the world, to the Caesar? Well, he's going to put Paul in jail so that Caesar's bodyguards, for one thing, and maybe servants in his household as well, come to Christ. If you just consider the end of Philippians, where Paul writes in verse 22 of chapter 4, he says, all the saints greet you, but especially those of Caesar's household. There were at least people working in Caesar's house that not only knew the gospel, but they believed it. They were saints. So by Paul going to jail, people who otherwise you would think would never hear the gospel, they heard the gospel. But he goes on to say not only that, but he says, Most of the brethren in the Lord, verse 14, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. They say, you know, if Paul's willing to suffer for the gospel, we can stand up and take our share too. We're going to be brave like Paul. We're going to follow that brother's example. Just like when the five martyrs were killed in January of 1956 in Ecuador, thousands of brothers and sisters the world over said, Lord, take my life and use it. And if I have to die on some beach for the gospel, do it. But I want to serve the Lord because of their example. Same thing here. But he says, of course, there were problems. Not everybody had the right motives. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Now, envy and strife often appear together in the New Testament. You find them in Romans 1 in that very sad list of the depraved condition of humanity. And you might be surprised at Christian preachers being described this way. But sadly, there are Christian preachers that preach because they want to get a following, because they want to be well thought of. And Paul was not sanctioning that or approving that, but providing they were preaching the right gospel, here's what he says. I rejoice, verse 18, that uh, he says, verse um, Sorry, I missed it there. He says, I rejoice that Christ is preached. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. And so he goes on to say some of selfish ambition. But he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. As long as they're preaching the true gospel, that's all I care about. He never had any time for a false gospel. Galatians 1 would be a good place to look there. He calls that a curse. But now just look at verse 21 as the last thing. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul says, I'm willing to be executed here for the gospel. If that's what God wants for me, fine. If God wants me to live, well, then I want to live and continue serving him and be a benefit to you. If I really had my druthers, I'd go and be with Christ, he says. It's far better. But I think the Lord will have me remain for this time. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I want you to do a thought model with me this morning. I want you to ask yourself the question. Think about what you live for. Think about what you spend the most of your time and where your mind goes when you're alone and what you are driven by. And you put that in the blank. You say, for me to live is blank. Can you finish the statement, but to die is gain? Now, I've practiced this. I've said, for me to live is money, to die is gain. They say Elvis is worth more dead than alive. His estate has made more money than he ever did in his life. But does it benefit Elvis? Not at all. You can't say, for me to live is money and to die is gain. For me to live is fame, but to die is gain. Can you say that? Well, Famous people who were very famous in their life. Sometimes they're not famous in their own lifespan, let alone after their death. How many people can you name from the 13th century A.D.? A handful, maybe. If you get more than 10, let me know. I'll know you did graduate work in medieval history. But fame is fleeting, isn't it? For me to live is my friends. Well... Not necessarily to die is gain. If you and your friends don't know Christ, you'll be eternally separated from God and you won't be enjoying one another in the lake of fire, let me tell you. <clears throat> but Paul says here, for me to live Christ and to die gain. Because while I live, no matter what happens to me, if I'm living for Christ, I know the Lord's going to use me. I know the Lord's going to be with me. I know I'll never leave or forsake me. And if I go to be with the Lord, I'll be able to love the Lord and serve the Lord as I never have before. As McShane said it in his hymn, I'll be able to see thee as thou art. I'll be able to love thee with unsinning hearts. I'll go and see his face and I'll enjoy him like I've never enjoyed him before. I will go from living a life where Christ has been everything to me and where I've spent time with Him daily and even moment by moment, and I'll step into His presence. I want that to be my motto. I can't always say it is. We get distracted, we think about other things. But may it be the desire of our heart, especially if we know the Lord today, for me to live as Christ, but to die again. And if you don't know the Lord, To die is not to gain. To die is to be lost. So you need Christ. You need to come to him today. Father, we're thankful for this time in the word. We pray that thy spirit would apply it to hearts. For thy glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.